This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. It is tax season, and the IRS says it will process tax uh, tax returns and pay out refunds on time, despite the partial government shutdown, which furloughed many of their employees. The agency estimates the, estimates that it will get 150 million individual income tax filings, and says that it should be a seamless uh, should be seamless. Excuse me, despite the new tax law, which went into effect in 2018. Taxes are also being debated among the two political parties. Some Democratic members of Congress, like Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, New York Congresswoman Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez are talking about the need for a higher marginal tax rate, but the idea is being dismissed by people like former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg and former Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz. While J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon says he would support that idea as long as government spending was handled in a better manner. In the meantime, Senator Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is pushing for a repeal of the estate tax, which impacts fewer than two thousand people a year who have estates over eleven point two million dollars or more than twenty two point four million for couples. Joining us to delve into a lot of these issues, we are joined here in studio by Richard Prisanzano, who's a senior economist with the Penwerton Budget Model. He also has thirteen years' experience in the Office of Tax Analysis at the Treasury Department. And joining us on the phone, Alan Auerbach, who's a professor of economics and law, as well as director of the Burt Center for Tax Policy and Public Finance at the University of California at Berkeley. Richard, great to see you again. Good to see you, Dan. Alan, great to have you back with us. Glad to be on. Thank you. Uh, let's start with this idea of the marginal tax rate. And obviously, it's drawing attention because of the percentages, I think, to a degree, that are being thrown out. 50%, Elizabeth Warren says, 70% from Miss Ocasio-Cortez. For those that aren't understanding a lot of this marginal tax rate is what yeah so it's it's um in the case of uh, ocasio cortez it's 70 percent on income above 10 million dollars so the first dollar of income anyone earns is going to have a zero tax rate right that rate is going to increase as you make more money so the income between 15 and 25 say 25 and, and 100 i don't know the exact breakdowns of the brackets offhand yeah but the, the rate that you pay on all of that income is going to be something lower than that top marginal rate. It's just that first dollar you make over $10 million is going to be subject to that 70% rate or that 50% rate, depending on the proposal. And, and again, we're talking about, I would think, a rel- I shouldn't say relatively small number, but in, in terms of the, the amount of people that will file taxes, it is a relatively small number of people that will qualify in that category. Correct. I'm uh, not in the near future going to earn $10 million in a, in a year. <laughs> Neither will I. <laughs> yeah. So. Alan might. Alan might. Alan, yeah, yeah, Alan might. Um, but yes, it is a small group. Um, you know, really, the top rate too is a small group. I mean, to get over four hundred thousand yeah. um, in income, it, it's a small break. So it's 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 even a smaller group, obviously. Alan, I mentioned this idea is getting pushback from a few people. Uh, Michael Bloomberg, former CEO, and obviously uh, with the with this being the CEO of the Bloomberg uh, organization, and uh, Howard Schultz, the former CEO of Starbucks. But is a marginal tax rate the right idea? Well, it depends on what your objective is. Uh, if your objective is uh, to raise a lot more government revenue, you'll raise some more, although it depends a lot on whether you're thinking of a 50% rate and a 70% rate. A uh, 50% rate is much closer to uh, our recent historical experience. The so 70% rate is not something on we've experienced on, on wage and salary income since the 
since the ni- early 1960s. Uh, we had a under before the Reagan tax cuts, we had a 70 percent top rate, but that didn't apply to wage and salary income. The top rate then was 50 percent. Uh, if you're trying to raise a lot more revenue. Uh, you'd probably start the tax rate uh, at, at a lower income than $10 million. I, I think the, the main objective here is to uh, basically just uh, make a statement about uh, the desire of, uh, to uh, uh, take, take some of the income away from people who are doing extremely well. Uh, I think there's a sense that it's, it's uh, somehow they're not entitled to it. Right. Um, we had, I mean, we had a tax system like this, and, and before the, uh, the Kennedy Johnson tax cuts, where we had very high marginal rates, actually going up above ninety percent. But they applied then to people with, you know, incomes starting in the, you know, a few million dollars. Now would be very, very high. And we generally decided that the tax system like that wasn't really uh, productive because it uh, tended to affect only relatively few people. It encouraged. A lot of tax avoidance activity didn't necessarily raise a lot of revenue um, because once tax rates get that high, especially taking into account the fact that people also have to pay state income tax rates. And so if you're and now with the lack of deductibility of those taxes, if you live in a state like New York or California, a 70 percent rate would really mean a tax rate in, in the mid-80s, could be in the tax rate in the 80s. Uh, for tax rates like that, I think uh, uh, the amount of uh, uh, tax avoidance and uh, activities people would engage in to to avoid paying such high taxes uh, would make it sort of counterproductive from a traditional standpoint of simply trying to balance revenue needs with uh, economic distortions. As I say, I think there's more to the motivation than that, and it's just a sense that inequality is bad, and this is a, an attempt to go directly at it. Richard? Yeah, if I can add something that Alan said, I think the tax avoidance, I think, is an important piece. I think even what we saw before 86 um, is a lot of a lot of people were were hiding or, or using corporations as tax shelters. And we kind of looked into into um, considering what people would do. Um, people with ten million dollars of income tend to have a lot of business income, uh, a large portion of which comes through pass through. And it'd be yeah. pretty easy to move that over to corporations. Um, and that that would would kind of facilitate this this hiding. And so I think to Alan's point, I think if you're looking for pure revenue, this might not be the right way to do it because there will be this behavior. And then also, I think, you know, Alan sort of brings up the point, I think currently with the way the, the SALT deduction works, and if you're a, a CEO of, a, of a, um, a business, you might be facing in New York or California something around 60 or 65 percent already. Right. Because, um, you know, you, you were, when you think of the, that 70 percent marginal rate, you want to think about the combined state and federal taxes. And so, yeah, if the federal rate went up to 70, you'd get people facing something in the in the 80s. I, I mentioned, Alan, the comments uh, by Mayor Bloomberg and, and uh, Howard Schultz and, and Jamie Dimon, and they talk about the government spending piece. Uh, that they would like to see uh, more responsible uh, where that is concerned. Is part of that just a little bit of a smokescreen because of the potential of them being impacted by the idea of a 70% marginal tax rate? Uh, You know, it's hard to know what people mean when they're talking about government spending because right now uh, more than half of our budget goes to Medicaid, Medicare, uh, Social Security, Veterans uh, health benefits. Uh, that's the, what the government does. If you and then if you look at what else there is, there's debt service. Take that out, and then you've got national defense. That's a big chunk. And then when people are t- 
talking about sort of wasteful government spending, they, they're talking about that last piece. And that last piece is barely 10% of government spending right now. Uh, so I'm not exactly sure what people have in yep. mind. If they have in mind entitlement reform, well, that's a big, big issue. If they are thinking about uh, making judicious cuts in the defense budget, well, there's money there, too. But if they're talking about what we call non-defense discretionary spending, there may not be full efficiency there, but it's not a very big part of the budget. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think sometimes when, when people look at, at – um at government spending, they do look at the small pieces. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think it's people can kind of say, okay, we should be spending money on, on defense, um, uh, you know, Medicare and some of the other social programs people might might question. Um, but, yeah, the, the piece that people talk about changing is, Talon's point, is very small. One of the, the, the narratives that has been brought forward over many years and, you know, me having paid taxes now for more than 30 years, I see it is talked about a, a lot as well, is the quote-unquote loopholes in the tax system. How much does that really still exist in this day and age? So I, so some work that I, I did with some colleagues um, about partnership income. So again, you have these flow-throughs and, and um, they can be set up in a particular way to, to send income to the right people. Yeah. There was basically 30% of the income that entered partnerships that we couldn't track, even though we had access to all the tax returns wow. and all that. We, we just couldn't track it. So I think there's a fair amount of behavior that is still there that that is um, can handle. And then I think there is some talk about things like the EITC where there might be fraud, but just the dollars in play there are smaller. Something like uh, looking at pass-through income um, and the fraud there might be some some bang for your buck. Then, Alan, how do you how do you start to kin- or I should say start? How do you continue to address those specific types of issues? Well, you would need a very major tax reform to uh, deal with the fact that uh, people who have businesses have a lot of flexibility in in terms of the way they can uh, 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 tax, have their income tax. Uh, you you would need to rely more much more heavily on things like consumption taxes. Uh, or very broad-based taxes that uh, that really, you know, just just tax income at source and and don't really allow deductions. Uh, the, under the current uh, approach we have of trying to tax income with different kinds of businesses facing different kinds of tax schedules, with lots of allowances for deductions and exclusions for things like employer-provided health care for retirement saving. Uh, for other business expenses, <laughs> it's really hard. I mean, we've gotten some rid of some of the most egregious uh, uh, tax avoidance opportunities. For example, in 1986, uh, there were a lot of uh, partnership losses being, before that, a lot of partnership losses being reported by wealthy individuals who weren't really in, engaged in businesses but were just using partnerships as tax shelters. And the 86 Act effectively got rid of that, but um, but that was more or less getting rid of fake businesses. If you have real businesses, it's 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 a lot harder to um, uh, to uh, circumscribe the avoidance activities. Eight four four Wharton is the number to give us a call with your comments or questions. Eight four four nine four two seven eight six six, or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at bizradio one thirty two, or my Twitter account, which is at dan loney l o n e y twenty one. Richard Prisanzano from the Penn Wharton Budget Model joining me here in studio. Uh, Alan Auerbach at the University of California at Berkeley joining us on the phone. All right, so we have, we've got several weeks before the deadline for actually people filing their taxes. I've seen a variety of stories already, uh, Richard, where the, the hint that is being given is that 
because of the changes in the tax law and because of some of the things that people have to adjust when they're going through their taxes, that it may even be better to file as early as you possibly can so that you can be prepared for what could be a larger tax bill this year. Yeah, I think there, that's a good point. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure that I... Um uh, you need to file earlier. You get a shot at it, and you yeah. can refile if you make a mistake or something like that. But um, yeah, I think if if you had if you were careful and had adjusted your withholding based on things like state and local deduction, and so you were getting a certain amount taken out of your paycheck, now you might not get those same deductions, and you might have under withheld, in which case you would actually have a larger larger tax bill. And I think that's at least what you're starting to hear is people like that saying, "Hey, my I'm expecting to." make a payment this year because I'm I my withholding was wrong. Now I think, you know, at the start of, of 2018 there was everyone was saying, hey, you gotta start adjusting your your withholding. Right. Withholding tables went out. They were kind of late. So you know, as as you know, um, you know, people these things go in and out of their ears sometimes. And yeah. so yeah, there's probably quite a few people who, you know, where maybe they were gonna get fifteen hundred or two thousand back, maybe oh five or a thousand and then the the wider range of folks. Alan, what are your uh, what are you focused on going into this tax season? I, you know, I think uh, there's a lot of uncertainty about uh, what pe- whether people are going to pay more or less because it depends very much on their individual circumstances, among other things, which uh, the state in which they live and how important the loss of the state and local tax deduction will be because there has been a reduction in, in tax rates uh, that for many people will more than offset it. But if you live in a high tax state like I do. Uh, there'll be a lot of people who will be facing higher taxes, especially upper-middle-income individuals. So there's there's a lot more uncertainty about uh, taxes, and it could very well be that people who, uh, for, for example, are uh, you know have have either either choose how to, how much tax to have withheld by their employer or file estimated taxes may not have gotten it right uh, because they may have been basing it on what they f- expected to pay in, in previous years and. This year, they either could have done, uh, paid too much in advance or, or not paid enough. What We're also seeing uh, the, the want by, by cities and states to delve into changing their taxes. And, and New York City is one example of it right now, uh, Richard, and the fact that uh, Mayor de Blasio is trying to push through a millionaire's tax. Uh, he's trying to change the mansion tax in the state. And, and, and give us your sense of, of those types of moves in terms of trying to balance, I guess, the budgetary concerns that, that various cities have across the United States. Yeah, so some some research I did with, with some folks actually that were at Berkeley and now are uh, Cornell. Um, all right, sorry, they were at Stanford, not not Berkeley. Um, uh that suggested a millionaire tax doesn't cause as much movement or loss in revenue to a state as you might expect. Millionaires move out, um, but millionaires also move in. Yeah. And sort of in an optimal tax sense or a revenue maximizing sense, uh, most states could handle something like a 68% combined rate, and they they would basically be better off in terms of revenue raised in a state. So I think it's a concern. Um, you know, and the research we did was based on smaller changes. I think getting rid of the state and local uh, cause a much bigger change. We're probably off of the support of our study. Yeah. So a place like New York City um, or New Jersey or, or even Pennsylvania or California might see more of a movement um, because of these these bigger changes. Um, and so it's it's a concern. And then I think, kind of to Alan's point, I think to to sort of handle that in a in a, a federal sense or a, a, across the country, we probably need a bigger tax reform. Yeah. You know, different definition of of income. Or, or something like a wealth tax that, that Warren has also kind of put forward, Some, something different that, 
would would sort of handle some of these these issues. Alan, uh, yeah, I, I agree with that. I think in terms of what cities can do, it depends very much on how big they are and how unique they are. New York City already has a personal income tax. There are not very many other cities that can get away with that because they uh, they're too small relative to the areas that a city like Boston would probably have trouble doing that because so much of the Boston metropolitan area is outside of the city and uh, a lot of people work in neighboring communities and I, I think it, it, it it's there's not that much wealth taxes uh, particularly property taxes are a different story obviously property can't move in fact it's somewhat surprising to me that when people have talked about wealth taxes, uh, they've talked about wealth uh, in general rather than uh, property taxes. Because, you know, if you think about uh, wor- worrying about taxpayers moving, you know, the taxpayers can move, but they can- they have to leave their their property behind. And and so uh, I'm- I guess I'm surprised that I have- we we haven't seen more of that. New York, for example, New York City doesn't rely as heavily on property taxes as as some other cities do. And Given that it's a very high tax place, it's a little bit surprising. Yeah, so um, um, I, I, Philadelphia has a city tax, so I guess that that speaks well for us or bad for us. I'm, I'm, I'm not <laughs> not exactly sure, um, but yeah, to the point of property tax, I think it is important. I think again, the research that we did, we found that. So if you sort of think of what I'll call a marginal millionaire, where somebody's just making over a million, yeah, most of their their wealth is sort of tied to uh, property taxes, or they're a, a smaller business owner where you know, they can't just pick up and move to Florida to avoid the income tax. Right. They're sort of tied to the area. Whereas something like, you know, if you're a private equity guy and you're making hundreds of millions of dollars, you might be able to move that job or, or if, if your job allows right. for telework. But, but if you're tied to the area because you have to be present or a particular area, I think that that is an important thing. And then, you know, sort of thinking about a local area, I mean, we, we've all had, had property and, and the assessment there is always an interesting thing because the cities or the localities decide we need this much money and then we're going to change this the, the property values yeah. by assessments and, and raise it. And so um, it is an interesting aspect. Your comments, again, welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. Alan, when you look at, at, at the, the process of people the, filing their taxes this year, where then will the, the biggest impact be in terms of all of the changes that are, that are coming down, to the, down the pike for this year? Well, the the two biggest changes that will affect most individual taxpayers are the the cut in tax rates and the cap on uh, state and local tax deductions. There are a lot of other provisions, but unless you uh, you have a uh, you know have a small have small business income uh, or you know or involved in a corporation, uh, these the, the, a lot of the changes won't really affect uh, you or or won't affect you in a very big way. Richard, yeah, I, I agree. Though that's that's those are the big ones. I think also the the increase in the standard deduction will affect some people. I mean, you could imagine that having sort of residual effects if it changed the amount of uh, money that people are donating to charities because yeah. they're not getting, you know, that the standard deduction kind of is, doesn't make any difference to them now. Um, yeah, let me just add that, that uh, many people may find they may have thought that they would be uh, continuing to itemize their deductions and may find when they 
do the calculation that they're now better off taking the standard deduction. Right. And that suggests that in future years, the effects on things like charitable contributions might be bigger than they are this year, because a lot of people may have donated to charity, charity thinking they were going to get a tax deduction for it, and now may find out that they're taking a standard deduction and they're paying the full amount of the charitable deduction. And I guess in part that that ends up being part of the process why we're seeing the forms themselves changing as well, correct, Richard? Yeah, I mean, all that stuff. I think, again, you know, I think there's this idea that that it, things got simpler, and in some sense they did, but probably this first year they're not simpler because sure. somebody that is maybe on the margin of that standard deduction has to do the kind of the long form and fill everything out and then go, oh, I should just yeah, take I the standard deduction. That, right, right. Yeah. I didn't need to spend an hour in front of, you know, tax layer or whatever, you know, TurboTax or whatever. You're using. Well, then, Alan, let me ask you this: that how do you think all of these changes are going to impact all of those those tax preparation companies? How how will it impact <laughs> them this year? Well, in the short run, it's bound to help them because more yeah. confusion is good for them. Yeah. Because uh, there are going to be more people who don't have the confidence uh, even to use a, a program and feel that they need to have somebody do it for them to make sure they get it right. In the long run, I, there will be, we, we know there are going to be more people taking the standard deduction. And it could very well be that people will go to a preparation company this year, find out they actually have very simple tax circumstances, and, and it, could, it could hurt tax preparation companies in the future. Richard? I, yeah, I agree with that, and I, I have no sympathy for them. None, none whatsoever. Not even a little. <laughs> no, that, that I mean, that's not fair. But I, I agree with Alan. I think that, that in the future, this year, will people probably be a little bit safer because they probably don't understand all the changes. Right. Not everyone's like me and Alan and following all the stuff. But to, nuts. but to a degree, it's a little bit of reconditioning for people who aren't used to this. I mean, they have to get adjusted to uh, to the new rules. And once they get adjusted to them, then from 2020 going on, it should be quite a bit easier. Yes. And, you know, I think, um, yeah, some some of you think of a, a low state and local tax state where, um, like West Virginia, to, to pick something, um, somebody in West Virginia might have taken uh, or might have itemized because they owned a home and they had some charity. And now that's just going to be washed out by the standard deduction. So in the future, they're just going to be able to, to file for free and Online and the mortgage interest deduction change that affects people. What the price is like seven hundred fifty thousand? I think yes. I think yeah, if is. you have a home that's more than that, there's a, a limit on the amount you can take in the interest. And again, the same thing is if you're you know over that amount, your your taxes uh, might have gone up to some degree or or changed the amount that you that you're going to owe at the end of the year. Alan, uh, yeah, I, and when you one thing about uh, things resolving after a year, I, one thing to keep in mind is. There are a number of provisions in the tax law that are temporary. And, of course, a lot of them affect businesses, but uh, there are a lot of individual provisions that expire at, at the end of the 10-year uh, budget period that uh, was used to, to evaluate the tax measure. Uh, it's, even without a change in government uh, or a change in the party of the president, uh, there, there are likely to be uh, further changes in the next few years, and some of them may be big. This, there's a lot, a lot of instability built into the, this tax law, perhaps more so than uh, in past major tax reforms. And so people uh, may think they understand what's going on after a year, but then things may change again. Great having you both with us. Thank you both. Uh, Alan, all, all the best out there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Great seeing you. Thanks very much. Richard Prisanzano from here at the uh, Wharton School and the Penn Wharton Budget Model. Uh, Alan Auerbach from the University of California at Berkeley. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.